Well, good evening. Welcome to Calvary Chapel North Shore online version. Um, obviously, we're still right in the middle of this coronavirus craziness and um, is as much of a bummer as it is to not be able to gather together. What a blessing to be able to have the technology to either listen on, you know, via podcast or watching this video or, or uh, whatever means you're listening. But praise the Lord that at least we can do that. Goes without saying, definitely look forward to gathering together with the whole uh, body uh, soon. So hopefully that will happen. Hey, a couple quick announcements um, before we get into the study tonight. Uh, number one, I've had several people ask me and ask Pastor Steve about um, how they can tithe uh, or, or donate, you know, since we're not taking a gathering, you know, or a, an offering rather on Sundays and things like that. So just a couple um, ways you can do that. Number one, if you're going to use a check, you can just mail a, a paper check to the church address. If you need that address, you can find it at our website. And then also, if you go to our website, there is a donate tab. And if you go to that tab, you can uh, pay uh, via PayPal if you have um, the, the means of doing that. So those are a couple ways you can do it. So that's in place. And then also wanted to let you guys know that um, this Sunday is Easter, praise God, Resurrection Sunday. And I know it's just going to be the weirdest Easter for all of us, not being able to get together in what is usually the largest gathering of the year. And it's going to be uh, all kind of online. So um, having said that, we are going to be doing kind of a special uh, service this Sunday. Uh, Pastor Steve and I are going to tag team a little bit and there'll be some worship and I uh, hope that you can uh, tune in for that. So looking forward to that. Uh, tonight, uh, we're going to be looking uh, at a passage out of Mark chapter 11. So Mark chapter 11 tonight, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 15. Uh, and what I'd like to do is read that and then make a few applications. But let's pray first, and then uh, we'll get into it, okay? Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be in this place, to study your word and Lord, I don't know if people are driving in their car or watching this on their computer or whatever, but I pray again that by whatever means people are listening or taking in your word, that you would just have a prophetic and specific word for each one of us and that your spirit would encourage us to know Jesus better, to walk in you. And I pray you just put your words in my mouth right now and surrender this time to you in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Mark chapter uh, fifth, or excuse me, ch chapter eleven, verse fifteen, and I'm going to start uh, there and read through verse nineteen. So, Mark eleven fifteen, and they came to Jerusalem, and he, that is Jesus, entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and he was saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, uh, excuse me, that heard it, were seeking a way to destroy him because they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished by his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And so, Father, once more, I just pause and ask for your grace um, as we look at your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as you know, um, Sunday, um, we celebrated Palm Sunday, uh, which really marks this commemoration uh, 
of the last week of Jesus' life. As, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem and what we call traditionally the triumphal entry, it really marked the last week of his earthly ministry, the last week of his life. And it's kind of fascinating because um, there's a lot of New Testament ink given to that last week of Jesus' life. In fact, for example, in Mark chapter 11, that's where Mark records the triumphal entry. And then to the end of the chapter, it's dealing with that last week. It's like five chapters. Uh, I counted all of them when you put them together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. It's like something like 26 chapters, all dedicated to this last week of Jesus' life. And just by virtue of the amount of of, of chapters devoted just speaks to um, the intensity and the importance of what's happening uh, during this week. And what I'd like to do tonight, um, as we're currently right in the middle of Holy Week, um, I want to look at one of the events that happened during that week, actually on the Monday after um, the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday. And I want to look at that. That's what I read. But before we do, I do want to take a little bit of time to just kind of set the stage for that. And look at the triumphal entry just quickly. I'll just more tell the story than read it. But I think it will help us to kind of feel and smell and kind of sense the the intensity uh, of what was happening. And it kind of will make, I think, everything come to life a little bit more. So let's kind of back up a little bit and um, take a running start at this little section. Um, The triumphal entry. The first thing you need to know is that this is the time of Passover. In fact, today, by the way, is uh, the celebration of Passover on the day right now as I'm teaching. But they're getting ready for Passover. And what that meant was, is that Jerusalem, which was already a very busy city, would just absolutely swell with people. If you remember in the law, in Leviticus, um, if you were a male and you lived in a certain, you know, What's the word I'm trying looking for? Like a circumference. If you if you lived a certain amount of space away from Jerusalem, that's what I'm trying to say. You were required by law to be there, and so everybody started coming. Everybody who is in Jerusalem is coming out of the woodwork, the surrounding areas, all the way up into the Galilee, everywhere. In fact, it would swell Jerusalem would to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people more than would normally come. I was doing a little bit of um, research on this. And I was reading something by William Barclay. And he said that 30 years from this event that we're reading about, there was a census done on the amount of lambs that were slaughtered um, for Passover. And it was something like a quarter million lambs were slaughtered. Then he said, but here's the thing. Each one of those lambs represented about 10 people. So that means that there could be upwards of 2.5 million people jamming into Jerusalem at this time. I mean, it is absolutely beyond capacity. And if you've ever been in, around any kind of crowd, everything just intensifies. This is just an intense time. It's supposed to be a wonderful time. They're commemorating their exodus, how God delivered them out through the Passover and all of that. But man, they're all there. And not only are they in Jerusalem, they're all trying to get to the temple. Because at the temple is where they would bring their offering. That's where the whole show was happening. That was, it was all about that. And so there's tons of people, there's pilgrims, there's, there's the religious elite. I mean, all these Pharisees and Sadducees, I mean, this is like their time to shine. They're like, oh, they're in their robes, they're all coming out. There's just like this religious tension. There's tons of people everywhere. Like I said, all these pilgrims coming from everywhere to celebrate. But not only that, you've got the Romans. 
the Romans were there, the, the, the occupiers, you know, as, as Jews saw them. And they were not only there, but when it was Passover or one of the feasts, they would come out in force. They would call up the reserves. They would bring them out from everywhere. Why? Because they were always scared that there would be some kind of revolt. And so there was a very heavy, strong military presence communicating there better not be any funny business. None of these zealots better lift their head out of the crowd because it's going to get cut off. You know, it was just a very, very intense time. Tons of people, all kinds of things going on. But what really struck me this time as I was reading through the triumphal entry in Palm Sunday in the last couple of days, is that, you know, when Jesus rides into this scene, it's not something that just happened to Jesus. What I mean by that is, if you read through the Gospels, Jesus, many times, he'll do miracles, he'll feed people, he'll heal people, and it will say something like, and the crowd wanted to scoop him up, you know, and make him king at that point. And he would run from that. He would, like, hide away, pull back, go, you know, go to the next town and get away from that vibe. But not now. See, not now. This triumphal entry, and I'm not going to take the time to develop all this. You can read it later. But this is something that is absolutely orchestrated, intentional, and planned out by Jesus in every detail. He gets the donkey. He brings a crowd with him from Bethpage. He comes in knowing full well what he's doing. And guys, when Jesus rides in and the crowd is saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. And he's encouraging that Jesus is. He was humble. It says he came in humble. But is he, he is in no way deflecting that worship. He's encouraging it. He's accepting it. He's in essence saying, yes, I am the king. Now, put that into the context of what's happening. Here's Jesus coming in and think about it you got the crowd the the, the crowd is the crowd you know they're always reacting they're like oh it's Hosanna but if you read Matthew's account a lot of the people in the crowd were saying who is this and they're like well it's the prophet from Nazareth and and so the crowd mentality is just happening they're like excited because everybody's excited Hosanna to the son of David and they're just kind of jumping on the bandwagon maybe a little ignorant of what's happening you have the disciples you got to think the disciples were stoked Because they've been trying to get Jesus to get this kingdom thing going for a long time. You see, they still didn't understand that Jesus, yes, he's the Messiah. Yes, he's the king. But it wasn't the time for him to come and throw, you know, the Romans out and establish the everlasting kingdom that will happen. But they were still trying, they didn't quite see yet that Jesus was going to come in two phases. He was going to come first as a humble servant to die for the sins of the world and then come later as the conquering king. So in their mind, as they're riding into Jerusalem, they're thinking, this is it. Jesus is going to show everybody, but we know that he's the man. So there's that anticipation and that expectation from them. You've got the confusion and just the excitement of the crowd. You've got the Romans. You've got to think that the Romans, as they're seeing this, nobody Nazarite rolling in on a donkey and everybody's proclaiming him king. I don't think they were real threatened at first. They were probably amused by that because they're like, you know, they're used to conquering generals coming in on stallions and bringing with them all the captives of war. And they're like, oh, this is your king, huh? Pretty impressive. But no doubt they still had their suspicion. They were still kind of looking down, you know, just with one eye, kind of like making sure nothing crazy goes down. All I'm trying to say about this is that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He was 
purposely, he was intentionally, by design, riding into Jerusalem to elicit a response from people. He was making it impossible to be neutral about who he was. It's as if he is demanding some kind of response out of the religious leaders, the disciples, the crowd, the Romans. Nobody's getting out of this thing without coming to some conclusion about who Jesus is. You know, I, I, I was uh, listening to a, teach, a teaching some time back by Tim Keller, and I love the way he put this. He said that it's as if Jesus was coming in and saying, crown me or kill me, but I'm the king. And I've been thinking a lot about that, just as we are kind of preparing this. You know, Jesus Christ was declaring that he is the king, and you've got to deal with that. And it's not enough to be like the crowd, just uh, impartial, whatever, don't really know who he is. It's not enough to, to just say, well, I like Jesus, he feeds us, or he has, he's a good teacher. Listen, you either got to crown him as king or kill him. There's no in-between. You know, Jesus never made room for people who are following him to be blasé or neutral. Well, I, I, I kind of treat Jesus as a supplement to my life because I need more happiness or I need some joy or some help in difficulties or I like some of his teaching. There's none of that. Jesus, in, in many ways, demands allegiance from us and says, I'm either the king or I'm not. And I think that's a good word for a lot of us because like I just alluded to, I think a lot of us take this and culture for sure takes this like, well, Jesus is one of many good teachers or he's this or that. Listen, um, you can't come face to face with Jesus Christ and not have him absolutely alter every aspect of your life and bring total allegiance to his feet of saying, Lord, you can have every part of who I am. If he's the king, if he really is the son of God, if he really is the king of kings, then we should be those that are falling at his feet in absolute allegiance and surrender to who he is. Amen? And if that's you tonight, maybe you're, maybe you're one of those who you're not real sure what to do with Jesus or you haven't made a decision about Jesus. There's an old saying, indecision is decision. You can't be neutral. You've got to deal with the claims of who he is. You've got to deal with the fact that he did raise from the dead, that he is the king of kings. And if you don't like that, well, then you can refuse him. But you can't stay in the middle. You've got to either receive him or reject him. And if you have received him, may we not be those who try to um, fit him into our lives. May we be those who say, Lord, if you are who you are, and you are, <laughs> I want to completely surrender my life to you. Well, that was actually a long introduction. I didn't mean to spend that much time. But the point is, is that as we're leading up to this uh, cleansing of the temple, it was preceded by this dramatic, intentional, orchestrated, planned demonstration that Jesus Christ is the king. And it was intended to draw out response from everybody involved, the crowd, the disciples, the religious rulers, the, the Romans, everybody. Well, what happens is this. The next day, well, actually, let me start with that night. That night, as he comes into town, we're told in chapter 11, uh, verse 11, it says, as he entered Jerusalem, he went to the temple. And when he looked around at everything, it was already late. So he went back to Bethany with the 12. The other gospels make it clear that um, 
during this last week of Jesus' life, he, ro- he rides into Jerusalem, but he didn't stay there. Each night he would go back to up, you know, down the Kidron Valley, back up to the Mount of Olives, and stay in Bethany with his friends. And he would just do that each night. Well, the first night he rides into town on the donkey. He comes in, and where does he go? He goes straight to the temple. And he looks, it says he looks around at everything. Kind of just takes inventory. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. But it was late. Doesn't do anything. Gets back on the donkey or whatever, goes down the Kidron, back up to the Mount of Olives and goes there. Why is that important? I point that out just to say this. Because what's about to happen is not Jesus flying off the handle. It's something that is very, very calculated. Jesus went to that Temple Mount, took it all in, looked around, made an evaluation of what needed to be done. And then he, the next day, comes down and cleanses the temple. And let's look at that right now. In verse 11, or excuse me, verse 15, let's go through this again. It says that Jesus came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he drove out those. Let's just pause there for a second. As a point of clarification, when it says that Jesus entered the temple, there's something you probably need to know. Um, Don't think that that means that Jesus went into the building called the temple. There's actually two words for temple used in the New Testament here. Um, One of them speaks of the, the building itself, Uh, the the temple proper. But the other word, which is being used here, is describing not the building of the temple, but the surrounding courtyard area. Now, again, I don't want to bore you with details on all this, but remember the original temple was destroyed a long time before this ever happened. Um, When the Jews were uh, taken over by Babylon and they destroyed the temple. But when they came back into the land some 70 plus years later, they rebuilt the temple. By Jesus' day, It has been in a remodeling process for about 50 years. Herod, who was a total madman, was an absolute genius when it came to architecture and building. And he had been remodeling. And to that end, it's called oftentimes Herod's Temple. He not only decorated the temple building, but what he did that was significant is he took the natural slope of Mount Moriah, and up here would be where the temple was, and he built these huge retaining walls that are still there today. These massive retaining walls, backfilled it, and then built this plateau on top. That plateau is the temple area. It's like 37 acres. It's still there today. If you go to Jerusalem, you go up to the Temple Mount. That's what you're going up onto, this plateau that Herod uh, built. And it's impressive. It's massive. And on that Temple Mount, this 37-acre plateau, there would have been all these various courtyards, the courtyard, of the, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the priests, and they're all up there. There's other uh, porches and porticles and all these things. Well, that's where Jesus is. When it says he went to the temple, he went there. In fact, specifically, he went to the court of the Gentiles. And it says that he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. Again, the, the language is colorful. The word to drive out literally means, it kind of carries this idea of casting out with the intent of violence. I'm not saying Jesus was violent with people, but there was fire in his eyes, you guys. It wasn't like he was saying, um, excuse me, um, would you mind not sitting there? Or, you know, he came in with fire in his eyes and he was forcibly turning over things and driving them out. Well, let's look at this. And, and if you're familiar with it, forgive me. If, if, if you're new to this, it might be really interesting, but I want you to see who he was driving out. It says he was driving out those who, first of all, sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. 
in those courtyards, in those, that court of the Gentiles, there was all kinds of trading going on. Buying and selling of what? Well, maybe there were some concession stands. I don't know. But the primary thing that was, that was being done there was they were buying and selling sacrifices. And he talks about pigeons here. No doubt there would have been lambs. Why would you need to buy a sacrifice? Well, see, it went like this. If you were coming to worship and bring your offering, we talked a lot about these offerings in our study through Leviticus. Let's say you're bringing your lamb. It had to be inspected. And so you bring it to them and they would inspect it. If there was a, a flaw in it, some blemish, it wouldn't fly. And so you'd have to have one that was approved. And they just so happens back here, they have some pre-approved kosher, you know, offerings and you could pay for those. Um, or, and more likely, or, or more, I think, um, uh, what was actually happening more so than that was that people were coming from all over the place in the north, in the Galilee, from all over these areas. And they didn't want to travel with their animals. So what they would do is they would just bring money. And when they would get to Jerusalem, they would go up there and they would just buy one of these pre-approved animals. And there was nothing wrong with that. It's actually not a bad system they had. It just was abused. But they would get there and they would try to buy these animals. The problem was the people that were selling them were taking absolute advantage. And there's actually evidence that a lot of these booths were actually owned by the high priest's family. Meaning, they're the ones that are getting the cut. They're the ones that are making all of the profit. and They're ripping off the people. I read again through William Barclay, I read that, um, for example, uh, pigeons. And, and pigeons were supposed to be like the poor man's offering. This was God's uh, way of like allowing anybody and everybody to bring an offering. And, and it wasn't just the Passover offerings, but it was like, you know, if a woman was, had a baby and she's at the end of her cleansing and she has to bring an offering, she'd bring a pigeon, you know, or a dove. Guys, I read that in one spot they were charging seven pence for a pigeon outside the temple. But once you got up under the Temple Mount, it was 37 pence. It's kind of like, just imagine eating lunch at Disneyland. That's what it's like. You know, if you go to McDonald's outside of Disneyland, you know, it's five bucks for a Happy Meal. You buy a burger and fries inside Disneyland, it's $7,362. I mean, not quite, but it feels like that. It's, it's just jacked up the prices. So that was happening. Not only that, it says that the money changers were there. Well, why did they have to have money changers? Well, the law said that every male had to bring his temple tax, quarter of a shekel. And so they would come and they would bring their money, but you had to have a specific type of money to let it be used in the temple tax. So they wouldn't accept any stamped coinage, anything with an image on it. They had to have a specific coin. And again, even that in and of itself isn't a bad thing, but the point is, is they were, they were just absolutely just gouging the people on the exchange rate. Like, Something like 1 to 24. It was just absolutely out of control. You guys get the point by now. Jesus comes in, sees all these people buying and selling and ripping off and taking advantage. But now also check this out. I thought this was interesting. Mark's actually the only one that brings this out. Verse 16. Also, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. That's kind of interesting. You can almost, almost see it in your mind's eye. You got all these booths and all this hustling and bustling, loud voices and people getting ripped off and not happy and upset. Well, then why did I even come to this place? And then, then I just wanted to worship and now it's costing me this and that. But then there's people just carrying their stuff through the Temple Mount. What does that mean? Well, it probably means that they were just kind of using the Temple Mount area as like a shortcut from north to the south or east to the west or, or just kind of, you know, turned it into this, 
this place where they're just carrying their things or just cutting through or doing business in other ways. And Jesus is looking at that and he basically says, what are you doing here? You have no business being here. The whole scene, you guys, the purpose of this is that the whole scene has turned into this busy, um, corrupted, clogged up, gnarly fiasco. And that's not what it was intended to be, which brings us to this point. It says in verse 17, and he was teaching them and saying, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations and you have made it a den of robbers? So as Jesus is driving them out, he's quoting two scriptures. He actually blends two Old Testament texts together. The first one from Isaiah 56, verse 7. The context of that is actually this wonderfully comforting and hopeful prophetic message about the millennial kingdom and all this stuff. And he's saying, my house shall be this house for, of prayer for all nations, you know, to come together. The other text from Jeremiah is this like scathing, you know, rebuke of the people um, who are saying, oh, the temple, the temple, the temple. And they were acting very religious, but he's calling them out for being fake. And you can go back and read all that. But the point is, he's saying, look, you guys, don't you understand what's written in the scriptures? My house, the temple, is supposed to be this house of prayer. And, and you've made it into this den of robbers. Now, now, catch this. I thought this was fascinating. Again, Mark is the only one who brings this out. But in verse 17, it says this. And he was teaching them. He was teaching them and saying, don't, you know, you've made my father's house a, a den of robbers. I like that. He wasn't screaming at them or scathing. It says he was teaching them. Didakos in the Greek. This idea of a didactic discourse. Um, it, it, it literally means to impart knowledge, to impart wisdom. Through his actions and through quoting these scriptures, he's, he's actually trying to teach them a lesson through this whole thing. And what's the lesson that he's trying to teach them? What is it that he's trying to say? Well, he grabs those texts. It's not difficult, but it's important. He's saying, look, in essence, my father's house is supposed to be a place where anybody and everybody can come and it's a place of prayer. What is prayer? Very um, generally speaking, prayer is this, talking to God, right? Prayer is basically, this is a very general word for prayer. It just means to speak to God. And that would include thanking him. It would include worship. It would include confession. It would include um, it would include bringing your, your sacrifices. It would include all of that stuff. The idea is, is just being with him. He's in essence saying, this temple was supposed to be a place where you can come and meet with God to pray, to be at his feet, to seek him, to worship him. And you've made it into something that it was never intended to be. And really you're hindering people from meeting with God. And that's what he was demonstrating to them through this. Now let's look at the response of what happens. That was, that was the lesson and that's what he's teaching them. And so look at the response. It says in verse 18, the priests or the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And they were seeking for a way to destroy him because they feared him. But because the, the crowd was astonished at this teaching. And when evening came, they, or Jesus, 
went out of the city. It's really interesting to me. Um, this is happening, and we're told that the crowd is they're out of they're out of their mind. They're blown away at Jesus doing this. Guys, this was not some little scene. There's like chairs on their side, money's flung all over the place, tables, you know, people are running around. Jesus is like fire in his eyes doing this, but all the while under control and teaching them, guys, this is not what my father intended for this place to be. Look what you've made it. And he's teaching them and the crowd's mind is absolutely blown. The religious leaders, they're, they're also out of their mind, but with absolute anger and envy. This is a colorful word. Notice what it says. They were seeking for a way to destroy him. I, think, I thought that was interesting. They were looking for a way to, it doesn't say kill him. It would include that. It means to destroy him. And the idea of destroying him means it's like packed with emotion. It's like, we don't just want to kill him. We want to get rid of his memory. We want, to, we want to kill him. We want to kill the idea of him. Like they are absolutely foaming and just livid and looking for a way to kill him. And so he's, that happens. The crowd's freaking out. They're freaking out. And then he just leaves and goes back up uh, to the Mount of Olives for, to come back another day. You've no doubt heard the story, but I think there's some great lessons. And it's, again, it's like I said earlier, it's not a complicated lesson, but I think it's a good one. There's some, some spiritual principles here, I think. You know, when you talk about the temple, it's interesting because in the New Testament, Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses the temple as actually like a metaphor for a couple of things. Number one, for the body of Christ, the church, but also individual believers. Um, the verses for that, by the way, if you want to look it up, it, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, Paul talks about that we collectively, as the, the church at large, are, are the temple of God. We are the temple. Who is? The church. All of us collectively together are the church, or, or excuse me, are the temple. We make up the temple of God. But it also says, a little more personally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, he says, don't you know that, we, that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? So again, talking to Christians. So it's kind of an interesting picture. As Christians, individual Christians, we are, in a sense, the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Why? He abides in us. But also, the church at large, all of us together are also the temple of the Holy Spirit. And why that's important is this. Guys, we need... <laughs> Jesus to come in from time to time and cleanse, purge the temple, whether you're talking about the church or you're talking about individuals in the church, we need this. And, and I'll take kind of a step further. Jesus is faithful to do this, whether we invite him to do it or ask him to do it or not. You know, um, I think about the way that this played out how did it play out? Jesus started with an evaluation, didn't he? He went up to the Temple Mount and he took a, a real strong, hard look at the, the, the temple of what was happening. He made an evaluation and then he went into a course of action and he cleansed it and he purged it. Now I was thinking about the, the book of Revelation. You know, in the book of Revelation in the first couple of chapters, what do you have? Seven letters to seven churches. What are those seven letters? Well, very basically they're this. Jesus is making an evaluation about his church. He's evaluating, saying, this is wrong, or this is good, or this is that, and you need to do this or stop doing this. And he's evaluating his church, and in a sense, he's purging it and cleansing it and making an evaluation. You know, um, 
And I was thinking in, in that Revelation um, example, he's writing to pastors. And I was thinking well, as a pastor, right, and maybe you're listening and you're a pastor or you're a church leader, I think it's really imperative that we do this from time to time. That we say, Lord, look at this flock of people that you've entrusted to me or this Bible study group or this Sunday school class or this church gathering. Have I allowed it to become something that you never intended it to be? Is it a house of prayer? Or is it just full of busyness and corruption and things that are happening that have nothing to do with what you intended it to be? You know, I was thinking about the whole coronavirus, the whole COVID-19 thing. In a way, I'm not saying this is exactly what's happening. I'm just saying it's not a stretch to say in a way, I feel like this is in a way the Lord's way of kind of doing this. I mean, I think churches all around America and the world are, are, are realizing what's important. You know, we're so easily distracted in church culture. And I'm, I'm at the front of the line. I'm not like accusing anybody. I'm saying I can be this easily, and I am this so often, where we get so wrapped up in church stuff and, and building stuff and, and programs and technology stuff. And right now we're all thankful for the technology stuff. But all these things that really don't matter all that much. Or we get all concerned about how we're coming off or our popularity or our ego or our this and that. And we can so easily make church into something that God never intended it to be. Is your church, is your whatever you're leading, if you're a leader, is it a house of prayer? Is it just a place where people can come and interact and meet with Jesus? Where they can connect with him, where they can worship him? And I think one of the good things that's coming out of the whole coronavirus craziness is that in a lot of ways, churches are finding out what's important. Because all of a sudden, guess what's important? Prayer. Guess what people are talking about? How we want to gather together again. And I don't think people care so much about what the building looks like and this and all of these programs. We just are realizing, uh-oh, what would it be like if we could never get together again? What would it be like if we couldn't have a prayer meeting? I was talking to a good friend of mine who's a pastor in Oregon today, and they're doing all their prayer meetings online. And he said their online prayer meetings have a better attendance now than when they could gather freely. And I think it's because what's happening is people are saying, oh, shoot, this is what's really important. And, and all the stuff that's not important has just been kind of tossed to the side and put, you know, thrown around. And Jesus is saying, look, church, you're distracted. You're busy. But what you need to do is get back to prayer. Get back to what's important. Meet with me. And then, of course, that same application transfers over not just to the church at large or our gatherings as the church, but individuals. Because we are the church, right? And I'm wondering if right now as you're listening to this that maybe through again, you know, not to harp on the coronavirus thing, but it's really upset a lot of our lives, hasn't it? And our routine and what we've maybe placed as our hope or we didn't realize that we were putting so much emphasis on our, you know, security in our money or, or in our home or in our, any of these things that are not bad in and of themselves but maybe our lives, our temple has just been so cluttered that we have made it into something it was never intended to be and we've lost that connection of just 
us being houses of prayer. Does that make sense? And, and I wonder, you know, maybe the Lord's allowing this in some ways so that you personally can reconnect with Jesus in a way that you haven't in a long time. And, and maybe it, it took him kind of flipping things over and changing routines and getting rid of distractions so that you could finally say, you know what, I, what was I doing? I didn't need all that. I didn't need all those things. Does that make sense? I hope it does. I know for me personally, um, I do have a lot more time in my schedule. And I heard somebody say, I, don't, I can't attribute it to, to anybody because I can't remember who said it, but I think it's true. You know, who you are really with Christ or how you maybe can gauge how you're doing with Christ is look at what you're doing with your time when you don't have to be doing anything. When you've got free time, when you've got time just to be alone, what are you doing with that time? And I think what's happening right now is people who have lost a lot of security and a lot of other things are like actually picking up their Bibles and actually spending time in prayer and actually going online and listening to sermons. And I just want to say good for you if you're doing that. And, and I'm glad that maybe, I'm sorry that it's had to be Jesus coming in and turning things over, but praise God, praise God. You know, in Matthew's account, we're told that as soon as Jesus flipped all the tables and did all that stuff and, and there's craziness and there's coins flying everywhere and there's mayhem and you can almost hear all the, the loud voices and all that stuff. But guess what? It says the blind and the poor and all these people came in and were healed and touched by Jesus. And sometimes that's what has to happen. All the other stuff has to get thrown out of the way so we can finally just meet with Jesus. I think we need Jesus to make an evaluation of our church. I think we need Jesus to make an evaluation of our lives and just be like ridiculously, um, brutally honest. I say, God, in fact, I triple dog dare you right now, tonight, to say, Lord, I don't want you to have to come in and forcibly throw all the furniture of my life over so that I can finally reconnect with you. But what if you came to him tonight and he said, Lord, what do you see? What do you see in my life that needs to change, that has cluttered my relationship? I once was close with you, but now it's all cluttered and I, maybe there's compromise and sin or maybe it's just busyness carrying things through the temple courts. But what needs to go so that I can just reconnect and make this temple a house of prayer again? Let Jesus evaluate. And we need him to come in and cleanse because it's for our own good. Jesus wasn't doing it to, to hurt them. He was actually doing it to help them. But this is something that I'll kind of, as I'm wrapping this up, um, we want Jesus to evaluate. We want Jesus to purge those things and clean it out. And listen to this. We want him to do it often. Here's what I mean by that. I, I don't think for one minute that after they, you know, after Jesus went back up to the temple, you know, or off the temple up to the Mount of Olives, do you think that they were just like, wow, that was heavy. Yeah, we really probably shouldn't do this. You know what? I'll bet you by breakfast the next morning, all those booths were all set up again and they were just right back to business. I can't prove that. But what I can prove is this. I know for sure three years earlier, they had had this same event happen. You see, in John's account, John chapter two, we read about Jesus cleansing the temple. But the difference is that occasion happened three years earlier at the beginning of his ministry. He came in, same, like carbon copy comes in. Actually, he had a whip that time. And he's just flinging and cleaning out the temple. And guess what? Three years later, he comes back. They're right back at it. 
Guys, I don't know about you, it doesn't take three years for me to pick up bad habits again or clutter my life again or get too busy again. A lot of times it's three minutes or three hours or three days. I don't know about you, but I need Jesus to come in and rearrange the furniture and flip over tables and reset often in my life because my heart has this nasty tendency of going back to the old things or, or a propensity to go back to busyness and, and, and have these moments of clarity and these moments of like closeness with Jesus. But my tendency, unfortunately, is to just keep going back to those old ways. And I need him to come in. I need him to come in and cleanse and rearrange. And I want to encourage you, you know, I found this to be true. Kind of at the beginning of your life when Jesus comes in, it's pretty dramatic. It's kind of like this. It's like tables flying, coins going. There's just mayhem. But you know, as you walk with the Lord for a while, it's not so much he has to come in and rearrange everything. But you just, you say, Lord, come in. And what do you see? And maybe it's just a couple things. Maybe it's like, you know, Jason, I'm so stoked that this is, this is fixed and we're working on that. We're doing this. But there's still this area over here. Maybe tonight, it's not like you need everything turned upside down. But maybe there are some certain areas that you're still holding out. And I'll tell you, if we don't voluntarily let him come in, if we just let sin go or all these areas of life go, he's faithful to come in for our own good and flip things upside down. Better to just come to him and say, Lord, do it on your own, you know, just voluntarily and say, Lord, I want to submit all these things to you. So we want him to evaluate our lives, our church. We want him to flip things over if need be. It's for our own good. We want him to do it often. And then lastly, and I'll just end on this, and it's kind of unrelated to the rest of the points, but I want to say this. Isn't it fascinating that um, here's Jesus flipping over tables, cleansing the temple, and um, that he, he, that's his first coming. You know, he comes in and he, he's there on his first advent, if you would, and he's cleansing the temple and he's getting ready to die. And go to the cross. But see, I think what's happening right now personally is that Jesus is cleansing the temple, so to speak, now the church worldwide, us individually. He's kind of upsetting the apple cart. Why? Because he's getting ready to come again. You see, when Jesus came the first time riding in on Jerusalem, he was humble on a donkey. But when he comes a second time, he's coming in glory. He's coming with fire in his eyes. He's coming to initially judge the world and set things right with a rod of iron. And then he's gonna bring peace and equity and prosperity to those who are part of his kingdom. He's coming again, you guys. And it's maybe a little bit of a reverse order. He came the first time humbly and, and cleansed the temple. And I think right now he's kind of cleansing the temple because he's getting ready to come in his glory. Interesting. Well, I hope that maybe tonight you can just, with me, kind of think through these events as we're leading up to Good Friday and we're leading up to the resurrection and, and all of these things. Jesus is our King. He's deserving of our absolute surrender to Him and allow Him tonight to make an evaluation, to see into the deepest part of your soul and say, Lord, what areas of my life are, are compromised or cluttered, too busy, that have taken me away from just a life of prayer, connecting with you? And uh, let's get back to that. Amen. Amen. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. Father, I, I just want to pray that we would pounce on this opportunity that we've been given. As, as hard as it is with the 
you know, the social distancing and quarantining and all of those things. And yeah, there's some hard things about that. But Lord, on the other hand, it's kind of this golden opportunity to reconnect with you and to let all the peripheral things just kind of go by the wayside. And Lord, I thank you that you're faithful to upset things from time to time to the end that I might reconnect with you in prayer and worship to the things that are important. Lord, I thank you that you came. I thank you, Lord, that you came humbly and that you died on the cross for my sin, for our sins. I thank you that you raised from the dead. And I thank you, Jesus, that you're coming back again in glory. And I pray, Father, we would be faithful to tell as many people as we can of the good news, especially during this time. We want to see you come in your glory. We want to be a part of your kingdom when you do. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.